Throughout my life, I remember hearing this scripture from Proverbs 29:18. Without a vision, the people perish, or the people cast off restraints. The question we want to answer today is, why or how does a vision constrain people? How are constraints removed when a people lose sight of God's vision? September 5th, 2021. Throughout my life, I remember hearing this scripture from Proverbs 29:18. Without a vision, the people perish, or the people cast off restraints. The question we want to answer today is, why or how does a vision constrain people? How are constraints removed when a people lose sight of God's vision? Most have heard the saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. The adage implies that if you have no definite goal, any path is as good as any other. Have you ever been highly focused on a demanding task and someone walked into the room and you barely looked up but said, hold on just a second, I've got to finish this. In that instance, a very definite vision is constraining your time and attention. You disallow yourself distractions that you might otherwise entertain. We've all received the offer, would you like to catch lunch with me at such and such a time? And we've all had to reply, I'd love to, but I've got to finish this by such and such a deadline. Your vision was constraining you. Precise requirements within definite time frames constrain and preclude all non-essential behavior. As the Lord drew near Jerusalem, leading to his arrest and sacrifice, he said, I have come to cast a fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. The fire Jesus came to bring was thrown to earth at Pentecost. Still, that vision of releasing spiritual fire constrained the Lord, binding him to the sacrifice at Calvary. He paid sin's penalty, balanced justice's claims, and opened a new and living access by one spirit to one father. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Running for the sake of running amounts to a race without a goal, a life without a vision or a prize. But God has designated definite goals for our lives and efforts. We must live and run in such a way to outpace all the Christian activity that amounts to aimless movement without a vision for definite goals. Jesus declares, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. Picture an airline pilot. If his direction is generic, loose, broad, a pilot cannot expect to hit one narrow strip of runway amidst a universe of space and place his wheels to straddle the painted stripe. Likewise, the Christian lacking divine direction and precise objectives, ambles down a broad path, allowing meandering diversions, side trips, and fascinating distractions. 
His course is not prescribed by a definite vision toward an absolute goal. Thus, his way widens. He casts off constraints. He blunders down the broad path of destruction. He travels as if the journey were the goal, instead of only as worthy as the destination it delivers him to. From Proverbs to Matthew to 1 Corinthians, all these scriptures reveal that finding God's will is a precise art, an exacting, obedient effort. Without navigational precision, we will undoubtedly cast off restraints, choose an ever-broadening course, blundering in such a way as to lose the race and perish. So, God, show us, what is our corporate purpose? What is the unifying vision that would constrain us, not for the sake of being constrained, but so that we would run in such a way as to hit the mark and win the prize? If our consecrated power dissipates, or if our minds are ungirded for action, and our time is unbound from purpose, if our steps begin to wobble and our focus starts to blur, help us acknowledge that we are losing sight of the vision, the goal, the prize. Please help us to see thus and run thus and fight thus, not as beating the air, but winning an unfading reward. The vision has become a community colloquialism for us, laden with all kinds of meaning and significance. But what is the vision? Farm fields tilled with draft horses? Homesteads with gardens and chicken coops? Family meals and family prayer times? Homeschooling and relating as God intended? Sharing the gospel, writing and distributing the truth? Is our vision the fairs, Easter and Christmas programs, seminars and symposiums, or mission trips and starting new communities? Every single example I've just mentioned is certainly descriptive of our vision. Honestly, just cataloging all these beautiful, meaningful facets of our full life makes you want to weep for the goodness of God in giving people like us so much purpose, wholeness, and life. Still, I want to twist the focus ring in my mind on the imaginary camera lens of my perspective until I discern the difference between our vision's center and its circumference. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul speaks of the church and its vision. He says, and I quote, God's purpose in all of this is to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So, the church's seminal purpose as a society, unlike those derived from below, is to shine forth, displaying God's wisdom, counterposed to all strategies and mechanisms based on rivalry, fear, and death. One legitimate definition of God's wisdom is divine intelligence bringing about coordination, creating wholeness, resulting in life. Let me repeat that. One legitimate definition of God's wisdom is this, divine intelligence bringing about coordination, creating wholeness, resulting in life. In short, politics in all its manifestations organizes societies around man's wisdom based on rivalry, fear, and death. 
The church is supposed to be that orchestrated people, an alternative culture that demonstrates to the powers behind politics a complete alternative succeeding here on earth. This visionary passage states, and I'm going to quote again, God's purpose is to use the church to display. Jesus spoke of the church in terms of its call to display. He said, you are the light of the world, a city set upon a hill that cannot be hid. So Jesus and Paul tell us that the Christian community is called to shine forth a wisdom that challenges principalities and powers and spiritual rulers of this world. This describes the seminal object of any legitimate church vision. Ask yourself, is my personal ambition to be part of a witness community shining brightly to the world, to individuals, and to principalities and powers of an alternative wisdom, building an alternative kingdom on this earth? God calls the church to witness to three basic audiences. The first audience is God for his glory and pleasure, then individuals for their hope and personal salvation, and finally worldly principalities for proof that Christ's hidden wisdom of life defeats Satan's power of death. Jesus lived for the pleasure of his Father. Every time God spoke from heaven to Jesus, he basically said, That's my son and I'm happy with him. Thus, Jesus witnessed to the first audience. He felt personally fulfilled by laying down his life, sharing love, truth, and salvation with God's lost children. After speaking to the Samaritan woman, he stated, quote, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus powerfully summarized God's will in John 6 when he said, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all whom he has given me, I lose none, but raise them up on the last day. We see the Lord fulfilling his witness now to the second audience. And on the Mount of Temptation, and then chiefly throughout his trial and passion, we see Jesus relying not on the intimidation of brute force, but the power of truth and love. He demonstrates to all Satan's subsidiary powers a faith in God, a love, and a supernatural truth unwilling to flinch or wince or cower and capitulate to death's cruel perils. Thus he fulfilled his witness to the third and final audience. To repeat, Jesus found spiritual, quote, food, or you might say satisfaction, from doing God's will, which, as we've seen, amounted to loving God's people. Where do you imagine that your personal fulfillment and life satisfaction hides? Is it tucked away in some cozy cabin by a river? Or does it await behind some gate of financial success, some illusory achievement hurdle? The path that gets you from where you are to what you believe represents lasting satisfaction, that path corresponds to your life's vision. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Isaiah 53:11, the prophet speaks about Jesus and says, 
he will see the reward of his soul and be satisfied. Let me repeat, the path that takes you from here to your chosen dream of fulfillment is your vision. Consciously or not, a vision already constrains your time, your finances, and your very life, deciding how you invest the most valuable resources God has entrusted to you. Can you straightforwardly say that your vision is first and foremost to shine as part of a witness of God's wisdom to principalities and to lay down your life for the lost and your brothers and thus live for God's pleasure and glory? Do you sincerely believe and behave as if these objectives bring you fulfillment and lasting satisfaction? Here is our vision to be a visible, shining, corporate witness of God's life-giving wisdom to his lost sheep and to competitive principalities. When we see that witness spreading to more and more, like the woman at the well, or Saul on the road, or Festus and Agrippa on their thrones, we feel our souls nourished through the advance of God's eternal purpose. We sense the Lord smiling, his kingdom triumphing, and we know we're living out life's meaning and eternal purpose. If the beautiful life God has given us ceases to be a bright display, we betray our vision, the cross, and our Lord. God's wisdom is seen and proven through the wholeness of life. Therefore, our agrarian life bolsters our witness to the world. Still, if we ever achieve a romantic lifestyle devoid of a clear witness to the lost, devoid of any burden or concern for the lost, we are living for ourselves in the name of God. It is not the vision, but blinded conceit. What do we call a personal vision for private fulfillment separate from God and his eternal purpose? Selfish ambition. Paul admonishes, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteem others as better than yourselves. The world idolizes overachievers who live their life with clear goals. They make the grades, land the jobs, work the long hours, achieve wealth and fame. None would deny that they live by a vision with definite goals. Yet their vision is for self and by self. We call it ambition, selfish ambition. And some similarly hijack the vision of this community and pursue the agrarian life or the perfect little homestead or the comfortable situation on the land. But they separate all of this from the core purpose of being a witness to those three primary audiences. The Gospel of St. Narcissus 2 and 1 says, Look out for number one, because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. Help people, but don't let their needs get in the way of your dreams. In Philippians 2 and 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
and the American gospel of hedonism is shredded in that simple sentence from Philippians. Does God want you poor? Does he want you rich? Well, he wants you poor in spirit and rich in faith. Most importantly, he doesn't want you to live your life as an island. No, he wants you to become a piece of the continent, a part of the main. He wants you to be a thread in a tapestry, a tile for a mosaic, a stone in a temple, a member of a body, the body of Jesus Christ. Threads find no individual fulfillment, nor tile chips, loner stones, or isolated body parts. If you have adopted a vision that is not big enough to incorporate the purpose of the corporate body of Christ, you are chasing a rainbow to find not a pot of gold, but a potter's field. Are you part of a place whose entire existence and interconnection with all constituent parts brings glory and honor and praise to another? Then every blessing God gives you is for His glory, and every sacrifice you make is for His glory. Even in the world, you know that prosperity costs something, that success does not come at the snap of a finger, and if it does, we don't respect it. But in God's kingdom, do we imagine that the reward will come without travail, the crown without a cross? Someone will say, we receive God's blessings and fulfillment through prayer. Heavenly Father, please weed my garden. Heavenly Father, please water my garden. Heavenly Father, please feed my children and sweep and clean my home. I'm indicating that people can sometimes pursue prayer as a substitute for obedience. You need to pray that God gives you grace to bring about his kingdom, but then you need to set about making the sacrifice, paying the cost, making the effort to bring forth his will in your life. It's true, we can do nothing without God's grace. Still, we must work harder than all. Yet not us, but the grace of God in us. Bringing forth this vision requires sacrifice and hard work, long nights, persistence in doing good. No vision is necessary for a single step. Divine vision is a light shining down a long pathway of faithful perseverance, shining toward a goal that does not show up when we first snap our fingers. How many remember the passage where Jesus spoke, endeavoring to adjust the thinking of those who thought that God's kingdom would appear automatically or immediately? He told them the parable of the talents. The whole parable was to say, this kingdom does not occur instantaneously. It happens by deposit, followed by faithfulness, followed by long delays, followed by visits, accounting, then more deposits, more faithfulness, more delays, visits, and more accounting. Returning to our previous thought, I want to ask, what is a dream without a burden? It is sin, brothers and sisters. It is selfish ambition. Everything competing with these primary objectives of bearing witness to the three audiences is a distraction and likely selfish ambition. But everything advancing our witness 
to these three audiences represents God's vision for our lives. When my mom and dad were in Manhattan, they didn't have a cow. They didn't have chickens, nor even a garden. They didn't even have a lot of people to hang out with or enjoy Christian fellowship with. But did they have a vision? Did that vision bring them fulfillment? Yes and yes. You see, we thank God for the cows, the farm and barns and houses. Still, they are not the center of God's vision. They are but accessories to a greater cause, glorifying God, loving our brothers and the lost, and displaying to principalities God's life-giving wisdom from a witness culture. The question is, are you living for yourself, or have you adopted the mantle and cause and purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, I have a fire to throw upon the earth, but I have a baptism to undergo, and my life is constrained until it be accomplished? And I paraphrase. If you have a dream of a home behind a picket fence and a romantic agrarian lifestyle, but that dream excludes any abiding burden for God's people, then you do not have the vision. Wake out of that slumber, of that dream that requires sleep. You can go on praying about where you're to move your family, but you haven't learned the only legitimate reason why to make such a shift which is to be part of a corporate witness, to lay down your life for the lost and to reach God's people. The church is supposed to display to principalities God's life-giving wisdom. Ask God to show you why you should ever consider making any such move. And after he reveals to you the why, the where will become more understandable. There's a blessing in the land, a joy in working the earth, tending the animals, raising your kids in this wholesome environment. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we drink deep of that blessing as we see the lifestyle work with us to shape our kids into Christ's image, while the surrounding culture shapes youth into the image of a beast. And I believe the Lord loves the joy we parents feel when our kids come in with a basket of eggs or from milking the cows or from digging potatoes and from living the life. Take joy in these small pleasures provided by God. Praise the Lord for this beautiful life. But all this beautiful life cannot describe the center of our vision else the Great Commission would tell us to make farmers, not disciples. You can have the beautiful life without God, His love, or His anointing. The blessed life God has given us on the land is not to be your romantic hideaway from reality. Instead, the life supports an eternal vision and mission, loving your brothers, the lost, and displaying to a dying world a living wisdom, and doing it all for the glory and pleasure of the one who died for us. We must care more about bringing people into the fold, the kingdom of the Son of God's love, than about our horses, our cows, our homes, barns, landscapes, and so forth. God's primary purpose is to love people into the kingdom and help people overcome all the vices and powers of sin and hell, becoming vital, faithful members of Christ's body. 
You can have your agriculture. You can have your farm. You can have your idyllic lifestyle and not be fulfilled, satisfied, because your satisfaction is not realized in that alone. You can be a sustainable farmer and not a Christian, but you can be a Christian and tragically separated from the farm, though it be God's ideal pattern for you. Many may bewail our current state of agricultural sustainability or the lack thereof, but they fail to see that we have made conscious trade-offs from time to time. At every juncture, we chose to put people ahead of projects and God's purpose before the land and our own personal repose. At the end of our life, we want to see the reward of our souls and be satisfied. And that reward describes people in relationships of life, not just agriculture, animals, and the land. The Lord gives us all things to enjoy, our gardens, children, and lifestyle. Still, I don't want to lose the core purpose for my existence. Let us never accept a vision without a burden, which simply becomes our version of paneled houses and selfish ambition while the temple lies in ruins. Lay down your life, including all ambitions, hopes, plans, opinions, perspectives, everything rooted in self. Say, Jesus, I want your cause, your vision and ambition. I want to live for you even as I die to self. And when you start to move in that grace, you're going to feel fulfillment in your life, whether you're working behind a plow or standing in a chapel on the Lower East Side of Manhattan's slums. How does the song go? If you see me in some dark alley, looking like I don't belong, you can put me in the greenest valley, and I'll still be singing the same old song. Free the people from the fire. Pull the boat out of the raging sea. Tell the devil he's a liar. Come and save the likes of me. Jesus did not say, You are the light of the world, a city tucked behind a hill that hopefully can be hidden. Is that what you want, to be a city tucked behind a hill, hopefully hidden? Wherever your dreams may wander, if they don't have a burden inside of them, their selfish ambition. When the founders of our community came to this place and stood at the overlook and saw the peaceful valley below, the river and fertile fields, they dreamed. But they did not say, this is the place where we can hide out and nobody can ever find us. Those places are easy to find. There's a name for all of them. They go under one label. We call it Tarshish, 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 chasing the vision without a burden, going somewhere fast without a cause of love carrying you there. No, when the founders of our community saw this place and looked over it, they didn't say, oh, here's where we'll hide out until the apocalypse is over, they said, wow, we could put a visitor center over here and we could have a fair down there and we could be a witness and we could be a light. We could be a city set upon a hill that could not be hid. God had already sent them to that emerald valley inside the rugged canyon in Colorado. But out beyond the rabbit brush, beyond the sagebrush flats, 
a light shone forth higher and brighter than the canyon walls could contain. People poured into that oasis in the wilderness. A witness went forth, lives were changed, and God added to their number daily. From my calculations, the church added not dozens, nor even scores, but they added hundreds of souls during the years at Rehoboth. From the days before Manhattan, God had stirred their hearts with a burden for the Jewish people, and many came in the New York metro area. But our God is counterintuitive. He sent them to a canyon in the middle of nowhere, and there Israelis first came to faith in Christ, and others too. The Frenches and the Brandstats, the Palmers and the Swinnisons, Stevensons and the Arizona Fellowship, the Fritzlands and the Yardins, Sister Marianne, Sister Jan, so many others. It wasn't about going and finding a place behind a hill somewhere. It wasn't about building the perfect house and having the perfect isolation and padding yourself with all the right trinkets and all the right fixtures and all the right little perfect set. They burned with a zeal for agriculture and wholeness, but also for a city on a hill that could not be hidden. If you succeed in hiding that city, then you have undone the purpose for that city, which is to demonstrate God's purpose, his wisdom in its rich variety, to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Our vision is to obey God out of a burden of love, love for him and those he gave his life to save, we owe him the reward of his suffering. That's our first priority. And then we say, what's the way to do this, Lord? Incarnate your life, your wisdom and wholeness in us, our families and our lifestyle. Let it shine from the top of a hill. Plant me on that hill and make me one of those lights to shine down over a dark valley. When evening comes, there will be light and on that day living water will flow from Jerusalem. Let my whole existence yield itself to that light, that witness and purpose. And Lord, let that vision constrain my ambitions, even my agriculture, my decisions, my finances and thoughts. Let that vision gird me up and equip me for sacrifices only grace can enable. Let me not perish in the widening path of my own private distractions leading me ever towards spiritual Tarshish. Let me find fulfillment, satisfaction in doing your will, O God, finishing your work. From the time you're a teenager, you should be living by a vision, and if you're not, you're sabotaging your future. Let's say that part of God's will is, generally speaking, for us to be rooted on the land. I believe that. Have you noticed that land is not getting any cheaper? So do you just think that it's going to fall out of the thin air into your lap? Let's say God wants you to buy a piece of land and have a homestead because he wants you to be part of this temple and witness that is shining. Not for your private dream only, but for his witness. How do you expect to buy that land? Will it land in your lap? You're casting off constraints. You spend your money on what does not profit, as the Bible says. You would show that you have a vision if you would save your money, if you would invest in things that matter. But you're free, expressing your independence, right? 
Or is it slavery to the fashions and impulses of a hedonistic world? Can you live without your iPhone? What about those expensive sunglasses? Do you really require skinny jeans or name brand shirts? Do you really need a truck like that or a car like that or a bike like that? Will you starve if you gave up your costly dinners out? Would you truly lose all self-respect if you cut your clothing budget in half? Pile up everything you spend your money on right now. New purses, gym memberships, sunglasses, swanky shoes, fine dining, big boy Tonka trucks, shirts, pants. Okay, now we've got that pile. Look over at that pile. All that stuff. And imagine a piece of property sitting next to it. You have no vision, so you cannot constrain your spending or your time to something meaningful and lasting. I don't want you to constrain yourself for your own selfish ambition, but I believe God does have land for you. I believe he does have a garden and a family and a lifestyle, but it's for his witness. But you can't even get those natural things because you're not constrained in your handling of finances. Some think they need more money. You don't need more money. You need more vision and you need more constraint. You need more purpose in your life. I have seen some lose out with God because they lived by a pseudo-conviction of entitlement which led to self-pity, which led to condemnation. The architects of modern commercialism specifically stated their objective when they said, quote, we've got to make people buy things they don't need. When you go into town and you fritter away your entire paycheck, shame on you. You're addicting yourself as surely as if you took a cigarette to your lips or cocaine up your nose. You're conditioning yourself to get a brief high off of purchasing. Mommy and Daddy let you live on their largesse so you don't have to be faithful at your job. You don't look at money as a constraint. You don't look at it as a provision from God and yourself a steward of a limited resource. There are people who would travel thousands of miles on foot to make one-tenth the income you thumb your nose at, all because you're still living at home and using your earned wage only to pad your profligate lifestyle. How many of you heard and felt your heart pierced by the priority shift that Brother Bob Fu brought last week? We praise God that this generous congregation was able to give him more than $12,000 to help in his effort. That didn't come from people who live their whole lives just scraping by because they want instant gratification. That came from people who are responsible with their resources and through patient continuance and doing good had something to share and give to others. There's something wrong with this picture. Because the vision you live by describes the Lord you live for. The vision you live by describes where you're going. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure is in things that don't last. Now, I don't want you to chase the American dream. I want you to chase the Jesus dream. I want you to, cho I want you to chase the dream of the kingdom of God. And I want you to have land. I want you to be able to grow your own crops and have your own animals and raise your kids in the way you've been taught. God knows I want that. And I want you to know right now 
that that will not satisfy you unless it's part, part of a greater, larger temple where it's surrendered to a transcendent whole. Throughout your 20s, if you fritter away your income on valueless fluff, you have no one to blame but yourself when you can't inherit what others are taking possession of. And when you do inherit it, if you hold it with selfish hands, it will become ashes in your mouth. Freely you have received, freely therefore give. Why does he say that the sower goes forth bearing precious seed for sowing and weeping while he plants it? Why does he say that? I don't understand that, Lord. And it struck me one day, he calls it precious seed. And he says that the sower weeps while he plants it because that sower is making a choice. Either I'm going to hoard this as my only food to live on, or I'm going to let it go to reap it in the future. I'm going to pay it forward. You're going to weep when you plant seed if you think that you had nothing to live on but that seed. But no matter the tears, the pain, the cost of paying it forward, someday it's going to come back to you. That's the risk of investing in the right vision. But the reward is you will come back rejoicing, bringing your sheaves with you. How many of you know of a plant that you can plant on Friday and reap a harvest on Saturday? None. Good things don't happen that way. Illusions, lies, deceptions, drugs, addictions happen that way. But for life, you've got to plant and water and tend. You must weed and pray and depend on God. And when it starts coming above the surface, believe and attend some more. Weed and water some more. Finally, one day, you'll stretch out grateful hands to tenderly take a blessing from a sacrifice. I know people who make so little in their salary, people who barely get by, and yet have tens of thousands of dollars to invest in God's purpose. And some of you earn ten times what these others make, but you have nothing to show for it. It's because you want instant gratification. Well, if you're getting instant gratification, you're harvesting off of trees planted by other people in the world. But if you want the fruit of life, you're going to have to give some, weep some, labor for a season. A brother recently told me, I had been working a good-paying job down in Austin when I moved up to Waco and began to work for Brother Shahar, and he began paying me minimum wage. The brother said, Brother Shahar could tell I wasn't very happy with my wage, which was all that he could afford at the time. And Brother Shahar said to him, You know, you can make a lot more money elsewhere. You could probably get a job at any one of these dealerships in town, Ford or Toyota, and they will pay you a lot more than I can. But they won't love you, and they won't disciple you. There's a time to say, God, I don't need to worry about how much money I'm making or investing. I need to invest in discipleship, in relationships, in love. That's the eternal exchange Jesus speaks of in Luke 16. But when he does prosper you, thank him and ask, what vision am I going to live by? And how will that vision constrain my use of this blessing? The nation of Israel began with a man who wrestled with God, called one who persevered with God. His life didn't go easy. The wrong man was slated to get the birthright, 
So Jacob got it, but by the wrong means, and fled. Then prosperity started to creep in, and he got cheated. After he was cheated, he wrestled with God all night and prevailed, but walked away forever limping. Then he lost the wife he loved. At least he had his two cherished sons, but then he lost the son he most loved. Finally, he had to surrender the second son he loved, only to receive both sons back, in a figurative sense, from the dead. Still, when Jacob met Pharaoh, weary and leaning on his staff, he said, The years of my sojourn have been few and full of trouble. Do you want to change the world? Well, that's what world change sounds like at its beginning. Life is never easy, and sometimes you toil for blessings only future generations reap. Moses never made it to the promised land. Jesus never hung out with the Spirit-filled congregation. Israel's days were few and full of trouble, but they were all paying it forward to generation two or three or four or five or you or me. I know my dad had dreams for us that by God's grace will come true, but which he never fully participated in himself. You look at him in those early years at Rehoboth, and he's out on the dump rake, or he's harnessing the horses. I know that's what he loved, but he made a conscious choice. I'm going to give myself to writing, putting these truths down for future generations, preaching, and incarnating God's word in a people. It was a choice inspired by a vision, a vision inspired by the right priorities leading to the right goals and destinations, and that vision constrained him until his final breath. Lord, you can take away all the externals. You can take away my land, my home, my garden and chickens, my sheep and ducks. You can take it all. You can put me in the darkest valley. But if I'm in your will, if I'm in your purpose, if I'm showing principalities and powers, God's wisdom of life and promise and hope for his lost people, if I'm showing principalities and powers, that God has taken possession of a human being and he's no longer the puppet of his impulses and of the world, then I'm still going to be singing that same old song and I'm still going to be feeling that same old fulfillment and satisfaction. And I want to be with my brothers and sisters more than I want to be on a farm, even though I want to be on a farm very badly. And I believe it's part of God's purpose. I just don't want the devil to see what I desire more than Christ and use that to seduce and manipulate me out of my eternal purpose. Young people, change how you view your job. If God has given you a place to be discipled, that's a worthy objective alone. Still, if he's given you a place to be discipled and earn a wage, how do you look at that income? Are you planning for your future a future as part of God's witness, looking toward God's unfolding purpose. Say, Lord, you've made me a steward. Help me be faithful unto an eternal purpose. Thomas Sowell said the difference between socialism and freedom should not be classified as capitalism and communism. He said it should not either be classified as the haves and the have-nots. He said we should describe it according to two viewpoints, 
the constrained and unconstrained viewpoint. He said, there is a group that is trained to believe that good things are the birthright of all people and that they flow into your life without effort. And then there is a group that is trained to believe that good things may be your birthright, but they come at great sacrifice, toil, and patience. He said, if you are trained to believe that good things just flow your way without effort, then when they don't, you lapse into scapegoating, institutional blaming. This mindset makes you look for a scapegoat when you don't get what you think you had coming to you. You say, this happened because of, and that gives birth to racism in the name of killing racism. Why did Cain kill his brother? Because his brother got a blessing from God. But why did his brother get a blessing from God? Because his brother made a complete sacrifice, and Cain did not. But Cain couldn't infer the sacrifice distinction. He could only perceive the blessing distinction. The envious say, that person has a truck. I ought to have a truck like that. Really? Can you afford it? Have you waited like that brother waited? Have you made other priority choices ahead of this truck decision? Which viewpoint do you live by? The constrained viewpoint or the unconstrained viewpoint? Do you believe there are blessings and a vision, even a beautiful life for you and your future and your family, but that you must toil, sow in tears, struggle, pray, wait, fail, fall on your face, and rise again until God blesses you? Ask the men and women around you who you honor as being successful, how their prosperity came to them. What diligence went behind the external blessings that you now envy? Ask what failures, mistakes, hard lessons they had to learn. And ask them if they would have succeeded if they had remained centered in themselves. Lord, what action are you calling us to take now that might alter our viewpoints, our resources, time, money, even our very lives. You see, wherever you are, if you feel the conviction of God's truth through these words, and you realize that you have been living not for God's glory, not to reach the lost, not to demonstrate his wisdom to principalities, but instead you have been living for yourself, what are you going to do about it? You could let God hijack your selfish ambition and turn it for his glory. You could change your heart, your mindset, your approach, your prayers, your aspirations, your whole life if you could recalibrate according to his eternal vision, his eternal purpose. You could accept constraints, and they might feel like limitations at first, but they would gird you up and make you strong for God's eternal purpose in the end. There is a road prepared for you, the destination sure and true, the path of purpose, divine calling, and eternal fulfillment stretches before you. Will you accept the constraints of God's vision, or will you perish in the broad way of destruction? 